Welcome to the Federation of Medical Women of Canada's podcast. This podcast was created by the Ottawa branch to share the stories of women in medicine as they complete their training, tackle important advocacy issues, and take on positions of leadership. My name is Camila Alibi, and I will be your host. Each episode will feature a guest host, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Beverly Johnson, current president of the FMWC Ottawa branch. Earlier this week, we sat down with Dr. Gigi Osler, an otolaryngologist from the University of Manitoba. Here's our conversation. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Osler. How is your day going? Dr. Johnson, thank you for asking. And um, I'm going to be honest with you. I will be completely honest with you throughout this podcast. I am physically and emotionally exhausted right now. And I've spoken to colleagues and I think people are just feeling tired. Uh, People have worked hard. It's almost like the last two years, people have just been running on adrenaline. And now across the country, a lot of the public health uh, mandates are changing. Things are really evolving quickly, like masks, no masks, what's a mask? You don't need to wear a mask in here. Uh, and, And a lot of colleagues are kind of saying, well, you know, the pandemic isn't over. There are still people in hospital. There's still ICUs. So I'm coming to you from Winnipeg. So I should actually say um, I'm coming to you from beautiful snowy Winnipeg, which is located on the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota and Dene peoples and the homeland of the Métis Nation. And here in Winnipeg, we, and in Manitoba, we've been hit fairly hard by the pandemic in terms of um, ICU capacity. And even today, I was reading in the paper, our ICU capacity is still probably about 150% of pre-COVID baseline. So we have, on average, in the province, about 72 ICU beds. And in total, COVID and non-COVID patients in ICU, I think we're at about 100, maybe a little over. So we're really not at a place where we can sustain another uh, wave. And that just weighs, you know, that weighs heavily on you in terms of okay, well, it seems like everything's going back to normal. I've been running on adrenaline for the last two years, um, but you're still worried about what's to come over the next few months. So, you know, I I feel like, uh, you know, that adrenaline's starting to wear off and I'm not sure how much left I have left in my tank to keep going. I I feel in in this because a lot of my friends who are not in medicine Mm -hmm. see these, these restrictions being lifted and, are, are confused. To them, it's the end of the pandemic. And when I go into the hospital as a clerkship student, I, I see a different reality. And mm-hmm. so for your patients and your friends not in medicine, how do you reconcile those two statements with the government saying, hey, you know, we're kind of done with this pandemic mm-hmm. versus, you know, the realities that our healthcare system is still overwhelmed? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll, I'll share with you, I think one of the, um, one of the good things, if there's ever any good thing to come out of this pandemic, is the advocacy, the voice of healthcare professionals and physicians that I have heard over and over again throughout the pandemic, where our voices have been um, called on, listened to. Uh, sometimes more than others in terms of, well, you know, the government's saying one thing, but, but what are the doctors saying? And so 
I, I see a lot of my patients, certainly my family and my friends who are still saying, well, you know, I, I don't think we're out of it. I don't see the pandemic ending on this date specifically. So we're going to continue to be careful and wear masks and wash our hands and do what we can to not only protect ourselves and, and protect others. And so that voice of physicians being a trusted voice of health and healthcare, that's really shone through the pandemic for me. And, and part of my hope is that we can continue to grow that trusted advocacy voice. And you miss alibi is a perfect example of it as a third year medical student, having spent the last two years of your training, you know, I, I just see this public health lens, advocacy lens, really um, filling the work that I see medical learners, students and residents take on as you grow into your career. Absolutely. I agree. You know, it's great to see all the advocacy work on the public health front. And do you think the pandemic, you know, now two years into it has advanced or set back gender equity advocacy movements? I think back to certainly the early days and and now, and, uh, you know, when kids were home from school and, everything was locked down, but people continue to try to work remotely and work. Um, Think about, and I've heard this from colleagues, I can speak from experience, I've heard it from friends. If you had, let's say, um, dependent children at home, or if you had to look after um, older parents or in-laws, during those times, who looked after the kids and did the schooling and and did all of the caregiving and domestic work, a lot of that work fell back onto the shoulders of working women. But we didn't see our workloads necessarily decrease during the pandemic. And so it's clear to me that the pandemic certainly hasn't pushed forward gender equity. if anything, it's potential, it, it set us back in terms of steps that have been made in equalizing things, um, it, it's put us back. And so, you know, now I feel everyone's still continuing to work hard, yet we're even more exhausted than we ever were before. Um, it'll be interesting to see rates of burnout uh, post pandemic. I know pre-pandemic, Canadian surveys that I saw showed that burnout rates in physicians were high, especially higher in uh, women compared to our male colleagues. And and I'm positive. I can't see how post-pandemic our burnout rates would be any lower than pre-pandemic. So, no, I think we still have a lot of work that we still need to do in terms of both looking after ourselves as individuals so we can continue to work and push for the work of gender equity, but still a lot of work that needs to be done structurally to close some of those gaps, wage gaps, leadership gaps, uh, work gaps, all the gaps. For yourself then, in terms of the exhaustion you mentioned at the beginning and you've mentioned again now, which is shared by many physicians, what do you do to um, sort of, deal with the fatigue and any burnout and exhaustion? 
That's a really good question, Dr. Johnson. And I'll share with you for myself personally, one thing that has become crystal clear to me during the pandemic is one of my stress coping mechanisms is um, stress snacking. And I've said this before in other forums, um, but especially for me, uh, stress snacking. And for me, a lot of times it's potato chips. So in the early days of the pandemic or in some of the ways when I'd be really stressed, there were times when I would be in bed on my phone, which is also a no-no, right? You're not supposed to be on your phone in bed or on your laptop in bed, but I would be in bed late at night, doom scrolling through Twitter. Also not good <laughs> for mental health. I love that term actually, doom scrolling. And then I would get so stressed out. I would get out of bed. My husband would be asleep. I'd get out of bed, go to the kitchen, pull out a bag of potato chips, sit and eat potato chips as I continue to doom scroll through Twitter. And I knew it was bad. I knew it was bad. Part of my positive coping mechanisms for stress are things like yoga. And I used to do a lot of yoga and hot yoga, but then during the pandemic, you couldn't do that. Um, so exercise for me is a, a coping mechanism. Um, and so I started running and I would run with my dogs. You don't want to hear, this is my sob story. Then I got plantar fasciitis <laughs> and I, just, I couldn't run as far as much anymore. And, and then, you know, a year and a half into the pandemic, you're like, oh, I feel like so, uh. So I did actually start to um, be more committed to my workouts and be more committed to healthy eating and less snacking this winter. Um, because I knew at some point the pandemic would have to end. I'd have to come out and see all of you beautiful people in person. And uh, I didn't want to, I wanted to come out being a, a better version of myself than I felt a, a few months ago. So for me, it is healthy eating, exercise, and sleeping. Um, I do find when I'm stressed and doom scrolling and stress eating and late at night, I don't get as much sleep as I need to. And I know that affects my resilience. It's hard. You know, yeah. as, a, as a clerkship student, I had these big dreams of coming home and going to the gym or, you know, hopping on the treadmill. But the mental energy I find sometimes yeah. to take I just don't have it, you know, and, and it's hard because then, as you said, it's that vicious cycle where uh -huh. you, you don't get to do it. You feel worse about yourself. <laughs> you, you go back to work, right? You do all the things that you do at work and then you come back home and there's no relief in the sense, but hopefully now with, uh, with two years into the pandemic and the experiences we have, we've modified our, our habits to to account for you know the lack of gyms that are available right your hot yoga studio uh -huh. that that are just not maybe an option or not something someone feels comfortable going to anymore and you know yeah. miss alibi one thing i'll share with you and it's a piece of um wise wise advice that my 21 year old daughter gave to me this winter when i was complaining about feeling so blah and and she said you know mom you're, you're so busy working and you're so busy helping people and you're doing the best you can. You should just, you should be kinder to yourself. And so she really made me realize that I need to practice more self-compassion. And Ms. Alba, I'd say the exact same to you. You are working hard as a student. Your, your schedule is 
not in your control. It, it is whatever it is. And so if you come home and you don't have time to go for a run or get on the bike, well, maybe that act of self-compassion is realizing you don't have time for that. You're exhausted. So you're going to take you know, some time to have a quick rest or nap so that you can then be refreshed and steady. And that act of self-compassion is so we're often the hardest on ourselves. Um, and so that's one piece of wisdom that I would give to you from my daughter that we do have to be kinder to ourselves. That is so well said, Dr. Osler, absolutely. And I, you know, I was many years into my career before I really understood what self-compassion is. So, you know, that would be something that, you know, I would tell myself now as a student, uh, or in my early career years, it's just okay to be cuddling to yourself and your thoughts and not to be self-critical and, you know, uh, just, just be compassionate to yourself. Something you did mention is doom scrolling and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I wasn't actually part of the med Twitter world till very recently. And social media is a uh, I find I have a love-hate relationship with social media. And, and I know that you, Dr. Ozer, have a great following on Twitter. I've admired your tweets from afar for, for many months. So what has been your experience with social media and how it's impacted your career and your advocacy work? That's a great question. And you know, more and more, I am seeing physicians on social media using our position and privilege to help be trusted voices of health. Certainly during the pandemic, I've seen more physicians on Twitter over the last two years and other social media platforms as well. I think if you want to be on social media in your physician role, do know what you're getting into. And our, our colleges, so our regulatory colleges, CMPA, our associations have advice and guidelines for being on social media because as physicians, especially during a pandemic, there's a different lens that will be applied to you. And so we have to be um, mindful of, of what we've put out there. And I've got a lot of colleagues and friends who are not on social media don't want to be on it. And that's fine. I've got others who say, well, you know, I want to be on Twitter just to see what's going on, use it for news, which is often what I, where I go to for my breaking news. Um, But they have anonymous accounts and that's fine. Certainly if you have a specific role and Dr. Johnson's a past president of the Federation. So she knows when you have those positions, um, you are, often the face and the spokesperson for the organization. So different level of scrutiny, different level of responsibility. Um, It's been an interesting time to be on social media over the last two years. I do think as physicians, if we are on it and if we choose to um, really utilize the full power of social media, it can be an important avenue for health advocacy for communication and to show our health leadership. And so if you are not 
on social media. And, and social media over the past two years oh, with the pandemic has been really interesting to watch. At the start of the pandemic, there were some physicians on different social media platforms. Twitter is probably the most widely used physician platform, maybe. Um, we have seen over the last two years how misinformation and disinformation has been spread on social media. And false news travels about six times faster on social media than real information. So if we are not on social media using our role as physicians, health professionals, and health advocates, sharing valid science-based evidence-backed health information, that void then gets filled with disinformation, misinformation, and lies. And we've seen how it has helped spread vaccine hesitancy to the point where, um, thankfully not so much in, in Canada, but um, it really has impacted different jurisdictions and different countries' uptake of the vaccine. You mentioned the Federation of Medical Women of Canada. So you are the current president of the Federation of Medical Women of Canada. I guess you're in your sixth or seventh month of it. What has it been like to be a president of the FMWC during this COVID-19 pandemic? The Federation of Medical Women of Canada really is just an incredible um, source of camaraderie and sisterhood and support and advocacy. It's been different because it's been all virtual. Um, and so you don't have that opportunity to get out to meetings, not to the Ottawa chapter, uh, no meetings in person. So it's been like many other people in leadership roles, an interesting time because we meet everybody over Zoom. Luckily, I think the video platforms has allowed us an opportunity to connect and engage. Um, but it's been, it, it's been a different time. I, I am looking forward to in-person meetings. And I'll share with you both, the Federation is optimistically planning for an in-person AGM and educational conference in Vancouver. Fantastic. Fantastic. October 1st and 2nd. So mark your dates, cross your fingers, cross your toes that we can be together again, because I think just that opportunity to get together again, to see each other, share stories, share experiences, and start to look to the future. You know, I think we've spent so much time just trying to survive over the last few years to keep our patients healthy, to keep ourselves, you know, head above water that come October, especially when we can get together again, I encourage everyone to come to the meeting. Um, it'll just be that time where we can get together and really start to look forward to the future, to what we can do together to change health, change healthcare and make it a better world. And so I know that you were also the first woman of color to be the president of the CMA which for some of our viewers who may not know, the Canadian Medical Association. And how have your roles in, as president in both organizations compared? You know, one is, is 
its main goal, the FMWC's main goal is to push women's, um, you know, equity and, and presence in medicine forward. And the CMA has many competing goals and interests. So how has that compared? It, so my presidency at the CMA was in 2018, and it was a fully in, in-person presidency. So no pandemic, it was business as usual. It was a lot of travel. So it really was that opportunity to get out to each of the provinces and territories to meet CMA members. And as CMA member, as CMA president, you represent students, residents, physicians, in practice retired, men, women, however you identify. And so you are um, the face and spokesperson for the organization. We had some really interesting conversations. So when I was president, that was around, oh no, when I was president-elect, that was when the hashtag MeToo movement started. And that, I think, across society, across different sectors, really started to spark some of those conversations about um, gender bias, gender harassment, um, sexual violence, uh, inequities. And I see, especially in medicine, a lot of those conversations and that movement grow. So it's been really interesting to transition from CMA to the Federation and just to see how each organization, especially now in this pandemic virtual world, start to work together, start to work together on some of the same issues to close gaps, um, both gender gaps to work together to combat racism in healthcare. Um, it, and I see other national organizations also starting to take up that role. And you'd be hard pressed to find any national medical organization who doesn't have equity, diversity, and inclusion as one of their top priorities. So, you know, it's just, it's like this wave of change has come about over the last few years. And it's really exciting because, uh, you know, I, I think everything I've ever thought about, worked for, stood for is not to change the landscape and the environment just for me or Dr. Johnson. It is about you, Ms. Alvai. Absolutely. It is about every woman, man, however you identify, coming after us, by asking me, Dr. Johnson and myself, to change the culture of medicine, to make it more um, inclusive, to make it more supportive, to make it more healthy, not just to benefit us working in healthcare, but to improve patient care. And, and so for me, it's not just making things better for us in medicine. It really should be about creating a better healthcare system that is more inclusive, that is more equitable, that has none of the isms, racism, sexism, so that we can provide better care to patients so that we can have better health outcomes for everyone. 
And I think for some of our listeners, it's easy to just separate um, gender equity and racial equity in medicine with patient care, but the two are very much linked. And, and can you talk a little bit more about how they are linked? Because I think it's something we don't always associate, you know, women physicians having, you know, positions of leadership, how that correlates to better or improved patient care. Let me take you back a little bit. And I'm going to start just talking about me, then I'm going to expand. So honestly, I like I'm brown. So if you uh, people on the podcast, I'm half East Indian, I'm half Filipino. So I'm, I'm kind of brown, but I'm kind of this, we don't know what kind of brown you are brown. And, and I, I know that, but prior to the last couple of years, honestly, I've never been somebody who's been out there going, you know, I, I just, I, I worked hard and I, I just wanted to make things better. When I became CMA president, I had so many people of color, and I'm going to say especially women of color, and especially women of color who are younger than me, who came up to me afterwards and said, I have never seen anybody that looks like me in a position like this. I could see myself doing something like this someday. That is so important, just so important. And it, it was like this light bulb went off in my head. And I realized, and there's a quote by Marion Wright Edelman, and she says, you cannot be what you cannot see. And that's really one of the first concrete times I realized how important representation is. And to be the first woman of color as CMA president, the first female surgeon, really afterwards I reflect back on it and I think, oh, it is important. And it's not that it was necessarily important to me, but I can, I can now understand how needed it is to see somebody break the mold to show people what you can be. And it's, it's about making the invisible visible. In that role, and I've had the opportunity, and I worked with Dr. Johnson in the past, I've worked with other um, leaders across Canada to start to have those conversations, to move beyond just talking about gender equity, to start talking about um, anti-racism, to start talking about intersectionality. Yes, for the profession. Yes, to make it a better workplace for all of us. Yes, to make it less toxic. Yes, to make it less racist. But then when you think about the change that's needed, the structural change and the organizational change, that's often where things get hard and where things get sticky. And one of my favorite quotes, and if you ever see me give a presentation, I often use this quote. It is from um, an English historian scholar, Dame Mary Beard. And she says, you cannot fit women into a structure that is coded as male. You have to change the structure. And when I read that, again, I had another little light bulb moment. It's the structures that need to change. We keep trying to fit ourselves into these structures that were never built for us, not built for us as women, not built for us as 
brown women, not built for indigenous women or, or black women. And so I have the absolute privilege of being able to work with people like Dr. Johnson, being able to work with yourself, being able to work with other healthcare leaders in Canada to have these conversations about what needs to change, our structures, our organizations need to change. And that gets hard and that's where things get sticky. And so part of what can help motivate organizations to change is impact. You know, what is the impact an organization wants to have? And you see it in the business world all the time. Maybe it's return on investment, maybe it's um, shareholder equity. Well, in medicine and healthcare, the impact that we should want to have is better health and better health care. And there's a growing uh, amount of research that looks at diversity in the physician workforce and the impact on patient outcomes. Uh, it's growing and, and most of that research focused on gender. I'm starting to see more now, a little bit on um, say racial concordance. There's one interesting paper that uh, I've read that looked at physician-patient racial concordance. And they looked at the outcomes for black newborn babies. And when black newborn babies were cared for by black physicians, the baby's mortality was reduced by half. Wow, that's remarkable. Once you start to realize that, like, could we improve the health of different populations simply by improving diversity in our physician workforce, by being more inclusive, by recruiting, you know, you know, by having better representation in the physician workforce of the people that we serve, Indigenous communities, Black communities, immigrant communities, uh, you name it. So that is where I get very excited about and, and where I really would like us to start having these conversations, start encouraging people to start collecting that data, measure those metrics, um, because that's where potentially we could really have some positive impact. So you shared a lot of your vision of how we can go forward and the structural changes uh, that you see that could really, and, and I'm excited just listening to this. Do you have any um, other areas that you haven't mentioned where you think you may want to, as FMWC president this year, break the bias? You know, part of what we've been doing at the Federation as a board um, is to strengthen our governance, knowledge, and skills. And at one of the first board meetings in the fall, after I was installed at president, um, we had a board meeting and I shared my vision for my year with the board. And I shared with them that I envision the Federation of Medical Women to be the organization in Canada that enables and empowers women physicians to change the world. And I think we can do it starting with the board, you know, equipping our board members with the knowledge and skills 
and experience it serving as a board director to be able to then go and be a board director at the Ontario Medical Association or on council at CMPA or at CMA because women need to be in those places where decisions are made. We need women to lead. We need women in power to start to make the changes within the organizations. Other women, like Ms. Alibi, need to see women that look like you in those positions to recognize that could be you one day. Thinking even bigger, we've had conversations about now, given that everything's virtual, it's a nice, easy way to pull people together from all over the country. Um, what can we do to better empower our students? What can we do to better empower residents, physicians in the first five years of practice? So we still are continuing to build on those ideas of how can we reach out to members and help members gain the, the knowledge and skills that they need to change their world uh, and to become the leaders that we need for the future. I think that's a, a great strategy. And, and the reason it resonates with me is because a lot of the times, at least during my medical school training, that's still not over yet, there've been instances or encounters that have been quite gendered that I didn't know at the time were because I identified as a woman. And, and half of that is education. I know mm -hmm. now that there are things that have been said that maybe wouldn't have been said to my male classmates. Um, and, and so equipping us with that information puts us at a better place to address it and mm -hmm. then make change from it. So, so I, I think education is the way of, of the future, especially among, you know, the medical students. And, and I think the education, I, I always tell my male classmates, it's for you too, you know, we need mm -hmm. allies to support us in these, these pursuits. Um, we're looking for equality, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that that can come through educating our, our male classmates as well. As I, I recall, as I got married, numerous discussions with family members of how was I going to manage my family and my career? And certainly, you know, it was, it was expected, and I think I even expected of myself at that time to, to work less hours, to be able to be the primary caregiver, you know, for the children. And um, that, was, that was certainly what family members were, were asking me of. And you remind me of this now today with this, with this discussion, and I, and I see you know, how much things have changed, which is fantastic. And especially as I listen to Dr. Osler's visions for going forward with structural change, this is what we need. I agree. And, you know, we're so lucky to have you, Dr. Osler, as the first podcast guest to hear about the future and the future for the Federation and your personal goals and aspirations. So before we end the podcast, we have one final question for you. What advice would you give to the incoming generation of 
female medical students about to start residency and female residents about to start on their career? So I'm, I'm going to leave you with two thoughts. And the first thought is on imposter syndrome. And have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? I suffer from it. On a- <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Like the honesty, don't we all? <laughs> and what about you, Dr. Johnson? Oh, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I will share that with you. Like there are times when all of us and and there are people who leaders who in this country who I respect incredibly and I heard one an amazing female healthcare leader um, talk at a conference how she had imposter syndrome and I think my camera was off which is good because I think my jaw dropped and I had to like close my jaw and I was like oh my gosh so uh, imposter syndrome that feeling that we somehow do not belong or are not worthy. I now think of that a little bit differently. And I would challenge you or suggest to you that think of imposter syndrome as a social construct, just like gender is a social construct. So if the um, place where we work, if the profession in which we work has gendered norms, if it wasn't built for us, as Mary Beard says, and we're trying to fit ourselves in, we are, we are going to feel like an imposter. We are that square peg trying to fit into a round hole. And that's not our fault for being a square peg. I'm gonna practice self-compassion and say, I'm a square peg, that's fine. I'm gonna to try to make the hole and that structure a little bit differently. So not only will I be able to fit in, but Dr. So-and-so who identifies as a um, pyramid can fit in as well. So part of what I'm trying to think of imposter syndrome is it's it's not me. And and I have some strategies to help combat that. You know, I will um, talk to a few trusted close friends and colleagues to say, okay, this is the situation I'm in. I feel like I'm totally off base. I'm feeling like, I I just don't fit. I don't belong. Can you provide me with some feedback? So I I have a few colleagues who I can reach out to and they'll they'll provide me some honest, objective feedback to help me uh, reframe the situation, to help me not think of myself as an imposter. So first piece of advice, don't fall from imposter syndrome. Second piece, second thought, you have a voice. We all have a voice. We're using our voice. Now it's just a matter of trying to ensure that people will listen to our voices. And for somebody like you, Ms. Albay, as a medical student, there's a lot of power differentials. It's hard to have your voice heard. But that's where working together, women working together, we as the Federation, working together to amplify our voices, to speak as one, to help other people hear our voice and your voice. So don't don't let anyone um, stifle your voice or silence you. We will speak together and we will be the change we wanna see.
Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me Thank on. Thank you, Dr. Hustler. And that wraps up our first episode. I'm Camila Alibi with the FMWC podcast. Until next time.